couple things before I get into the message here, things that uh, take place in the life of the church. I have been talking several weeks on and off here about this thing that we call Renewal Lab, and we've been doing that for a while. Uh, and in the Renewal Lab, we, we are at a point where we're asking for feedback. So uh, there's a survey that is available, and I announced that last week, a survey that you can take, one that we hope that as many people here as possible will take the time to take that survey. And, and I announced last week that this is actually the first survey out of two, so be ready. We're, we're going to work the rest of March to get through this first survey, and then in April, we're going to launch another one. Not that we're trying to be redundant or overload you. They, they are different surveys with different questions, and they get at different results, different data that would help us. But that would be very helpful to us as a Renewal Lab team to get feedback from everyone here. That helps us sort of measure how you are all experiencing church and faith and God and spiritual growth that helps us to know how we can articulate how we as a church can best find and articulate a vision of moving forward and what's next for us. So that is available. Uh, it was in mailboxes last week that have the link to that because it's all online. It's in the midweek. You can find it there, uh, to the link to get at it online. And if you do not have a computer or internet and you cannot get online to do that, here's what we have, that we have a couple of computers available here. So if you want to take that survey today, you can do that after the service today in the back of the fellowship hall area. We have a few computers set up where it takes anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes uh, to work through that survey. But if you want to do that here today at a computer that we have available, it is here today for you to do that. Otherwise, please, sometime during the week, give 15 or 20 minutes of your time to follow that link and take that survey. That would help us tremendously. One other thing that I'm going to announce about the life of this church as we've been doing that. We have, for several years, uh, had a youth director who's been working as an interim, just sort of a, a fill-in for a time. And if you don't have kids in youth group, maybe you're not aware of this, that uh, Barb Van Ryan has been serving as our default youth leader as an interim while we're working on some changes with, with job description and that sort of thing. Well, the, uh, the council has, has revamped some of that job description and looked towards that. And in conversation with that, uh, Barb Van Ryan will no longer be the interim, but take that position on moving forward. So we are delighted to announce that. Barb is not sort of our temporary fill-in for that, but is going to stay with our youth group in that leadership position as a part of our staff here. Yes. <laughs> um, Bruce and Barb Van Ryan have been leading the youth group for several years now in that. And uh, the youth group, if you have not been here on a Sunday afternoon to see it, 40 or 50 students show up um, coming to youth group. Uh, so it's, it's a time where kids are finding, students are finding a place where they can connect and be with each other and know that they are with youth leaders who invite them and love them and enfold them and encourage them to grow in faith. So it's, it's one of those ministries that maybe we don't see a whole lot of visibility right here on a Sunday morning, but I know for those of you who've had the chance to come on a Sunday afternoon and see that, you see the number of students that we have here who come into this place for youth group on Sunday afternoon. It's a vital ministry of this church that we do, so we're 
happy to continue resourcing that with the best people who can do that. But those are things that go on in the life of the church, things that we are a part of, things that uh, have their expression here on a Sunday, but also things that take shape in all the places that we go beyond being here on Sunday. I want to turn our attention now to uh, what we're going to look at in God's Word for today. That we are working through this series for the season of Lent. A series that I'm calling Rewind. Uh, and we're working through it in that, in that context of a rewind. In that, this is a part of Scripture that calls us to look back. So we've been working backwards through the Gospel of John as we do that. Backwards through the Gospel of John in ways that help us see the way that Jesus, even before he went to the cross, before he did everything to take our sins upon himself, he was preparing his disciples for that moment and how he talked with them in the events and actions that took place. All of that was meant to prepare his followers for what was coming. And for those of us now who live on the other side of that, who don't look forward to the cross, but we look back to the cross, there's something instructive in these words that help us see the way that Jesus even now prepares us for the cross, even though it's an event that has already happened. The meaning of the cross becomes deeper for us as we look back at that. So that's what we've been doing. We've been working backwards through the Gospel of John, and we started at that moment right before the crucifixion. We started at that moment when Jesus and Pontius Pilate are together and Pilate gives him over to be executed and the soldiers take him away to nail him on the cross. That's where we began and we've been going backwards step by step since then. So we are backing up today to chapter 14. Chapter 14, and this is a story where Jesus gives some words of instruction and comfort to his disciples. This is what happens. I'm going to read the first 14 verses of John 14. Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. 
Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these. Because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Working backwards from the cross, then, to see how Jesus is preparing us as his people for what's coming. Preparing us as his people for what he has already done as we look back at it now. And how these words are instructive for the disciples in that. And that word of instruction is still helpful for us today. So let me start with this. Let's start with where this passage begins, where, where Jesus talks about a house. That the Father has a house with many rooms. And, and what that looks like for that house of many rooms to be there. And Jesus describes that, and Thomas says, Thomas says, Lord, how do we know where you're going? We don't know the way. Thinking about how Jesus describes that and what that looks like. So I, I don't know what, what picture comes to your mind when you read a verse like that. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you, that, that you get a, a visual picture in your mind, and I don't know what that looks like, that house that is being prepared. Maybe you envision something like a giant mansion, right? And, and it's a mansion where everyone has their own room, their own place that's especially prepared just for them. Or maybe you think of it, um, maybe you picture something like a, a resort, something like that. We've all got a place, and maybe you, you've got your own private balcony or patio or your own little kitchen like it's an apartment kind of complex. I don't know what you picture when you think of that. But a little lesson here today in how to read Scripture correctly. The disciples, the, the ones who Jesus was talking to with this, would not have pictured anything like anything like that like you and I would think of it. So maybe a good place for us to start is to think, all right, when Jesus talked about this house with many rooms that is being prepared, how did the disciples back then in that time hear and envision that, those words? Because even though Jesus is speaking metaphorically, these are word pictures. He's describing something that is not necessarily literal, but he's giving them an idea. It still brings a vision to mind because he's using those images that bring that vision to mind. So what would the disciples have envisioned about a house with many rooms? Let's remind ourselves of a couple of things. First of all, most people during that time lived in a one-room dwelling. That's how most people had a house. It was a single room, and they did everything in that one room. Right? They, they would, that would be their kitchen, where they would prepare meals. Also, it would be their dining room, where they would eat meals. 
Also, it would be the bedroom where they would roll out their sleeping mats and all sleep there as a family together. Everything that the family did would be in this one room of this one house. Now, the more well-off in society had houses with more than one room. And archaeology would tell us that often the layout of that would be a door that, uh, like a, a gate or a wall, and a door that opens into an open courtyard. So it's an open-air courtyard with no roof over it. And then there are rooms all around the perimeter of that courtyard. That's what the disciples are picturing now. A house with many rooms. Oh, I, I see that. I've, that's what that looks like for us in the time that they're living. That it's this open-air courtyard with all these rooms around. But here's how that worked, though. It's not like, okay, and everyone has their own bedroom, and there's a rec room, and there's a walk-in closet, and there's a big kitchen, and there's a dining room, and it's not houses like we have it. So what's the purpose of the many rooms? Why would you have a house with many rooms when you don't have all those rooms like we think of it? Well, let's remind ourselves of this as well, that um, they didn't make a weekly Aldi's run to stock the pantry back in that time. I, lots of us, all right, we, we've got a kitchen with a pantry and, I don't know, you go shopping once a week or maybe every other week or sometimes it's, you know what, I just shop a day at a time, that kind of a thing. That was not life for them. There was no grocery store where they could do that. So during the growing season, they would grow what they needed for food and certain pieces of that food would be shelf-stable. It wouldn't spoil. And they would store it up. Things like grain could be stored and they could eat off that for the entire year until the next harvest. Olive oil would keep like that. Wine that they would make would keep like that. And that comes at harvest time and they've got to keep that for a whole year. What would your kitchen look like if you had to go to the store once a year and stock an entire year's worth of food in your kitchen for the whole year to hold that? So those who had the ability and the means to actually take in and hold and keep the year's worth of food that they needed, well, they would have houses that could hold that. Rooms. Some of these extra rooms were rooms that were just used for storing. Storing provisions. Storing what's needed. The disciples are getting a picture of this. I want us to see some of that picture too. Jesus is talking about his father is a house and it's a house with many rooms. Oh, it's a place that has the provisions. That it's stored, it's stocked up. That everything that you need to survive and thrive is there already. You don't have to go out looking for it. You don't have to gather it in. It's already there. This is what the disciples are hearing. The provisions are already there. And in this Middle Eastern context where hospitality was a big deal, right? they, they didn't have hotels or places that you could stay like that. When travelers came to town, those who lived there were expected to host them. It was a culture of hospitality that way. Jesus is describing there then, the Heavenly Father is ready to extend a hospitality that provides everything that is needed. It's already there. That the Heavenly Father welcomes in those who journey and travel to Him. He says, I have a place for you. 
and I have all of the provisions that you will need, and it's already here. It's no wonder, it's no wonder that Philip responds to this and says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. That will be enough for us, right? That's what Philip says. No wonder he says that. That's awesome. Let's do that. Let's go. Let's be at that place. But then, this is where Jesus turns the conversation, isn't it? He says, you already know the way. You already know how to get there. Now the disciples are all scratching their heads. That's where Thomas asks that question. Hang on. No, we don't. We don't know how to get there. Help us to find the way. I wonder what the disciples were actually envisioning right here at this moment. That, that we sort of get the idea from other pieces of the gospel that the disciples have it in their mind that Jesus is the Messiah who's going to overthrow the Roman Empire. They, they have it in their mind that, well, the Messiah is here to get rid of the Romans so that the nation of Israel, the Israelite people, can be the top of the heap, right? That we are the ones then who rule the world instead of the ones being ruled by the world. Some of that works into what the disciples are thinking, that they're waiting for Jesus to do that, right? They can be a part of that. They want to know, how are we going to get there? So, Jesus, what are we doing? How do we get going on this plan to kick out the Romans and put ourselves back on top? Or whatever their thoughts were. But Jesus responds to that. He answers Thomas and he says, No, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not something that you go after yourself. It's not something that has a, an agenda that you can build and go on as your own. And he goes on in the next verse to say, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That something of the Father is already revealed to them. And we see it in Jesus. That Jesus declares he is the way to the Father and what that looks like. That the incarnate Son of God reveals to us who God is. And he does that in ways that says he's the only way. Now, now I have uh, read and heard about theologians or commentaries that talk about this being sort of the exclusive truth claim of the gospel. Right? That Christianity is the only way to salvation because Jesus says that he is the only way to the Father. That this then is, is one of those texts of the Bible that we pull out that would say, you know, there, there is no such thing as a, a universal moralism about that. Right there, there are those who would want to say that, well, you know, we call it Jesus and God and others. Other religions may call it Allah or Buddha or enlightenment or whatever. And some people would want to say, you know what, that's just different language that all names the same thing. And it all gets to the same place. 
And then Christians would look at a verse like this and say, but, but Jesus says, no, wait a minute. He's the only way. There is no other way. There is no other path that gets you to the Heavenly Father except through Jesus. Now, I'm not going to dispute any of that as being wrong because we do believe that, that Jesus is the only way. But I want us to, to consider the context of this passage because I don't think the issue here is that the disciples are in this moment of struggling with which religion is right. I don't think that's what Jesus was addressing with them right there at that time and in that moment. So even though we can read some of that in the words, let's look at what Jesus is really addressing. It's not that, not that the disciples are struggling with which religion is right. Their struggle is more about with their own merit within that. That they are trying to find their own way to where they think God is taking them. Doing it by their own route. They're stuck. Stuck trying to find their own way to God. So Jesus tells them, you know the way to go to the Father, and, and they're stuck. No, we don't. We don't know the way to the Father because they've been trying to find their own way themselves instead of recognizing that Jesus is the way. Leaning on their own merit to be a part of God's covenant family. For the disciples and in their time, I mean, that, that would have been something that was tied together with being born in the Jewish Hebrew lineage, right? That they looked at the Old Testament passages of God's promise to Abraham and the descendants of Abraham, and, and in their mind, it would have been one of, well, yes, we're a part of God's covenant because we were born into it. By our family heritage, we're a part of it. And God gives these laws, these rituals, these things that we do as a part of being his family. And we do those things because that's what keeps us in the covenant of God. That we claim our own merit into the covenant of God by doing those things and those habits and those patterns. And just because of who we are, the family we were born into, they're trying to find their own way. I think this one is instructive for us. Instructive for us is maybe the reminder that at least should give us a pause to ask the question. Seriously ask the question of ourselves. How are we trying to find our own way into the covenant with God? Are we trying to find our own way into the covenant with God? And maybe, maybe it makes a little more sense if I flip the question a bit. If I were to ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? So what does it mean to be a Christian? And some of those things that might come on the answer to that, well, a Christian, it means, you know, you do things like you go to church and you're generous, you give an offering and maybe you, you pray and you do your devotions and you try to be a good person and live by moral and ethical standards to be godly and pure that way. That those are all the things that, that it means to be a Christian. But look, those are all things that I have to do. Right? It's all my activity. 
And are those really the things that give me merit into God's covenant promise? By those things that I do. I am, I'm amazed by how often that, um, in the context of a funeral, whenever I'm at a funeral, and it's a funeral for, for a saint who dies in the faith, how often I will hear words shared, words that say something like, I'm sure that my loved one is in heaven now because they were such a great person. Or because, because they were such a good Christian, I'm sure they're with Jesus now. And now, on the one hand, I don't dispute that they were people of faith. And also, I don't dispute that they are with Jesus. But I have an issue with those two things being connected. Because those who die in the faith, if they are with Jesus, it has nothing to do with the kind of person they were, what they've done. It has nothing to do with that. They're with Jesus because of what Jesus has done for them. It's because of what God does. I think that's what Jesus is getting after in this. Uh, right? he's, he's not giving some kind of a theological exposition of this is why Christianity is the only right religion and all those other religions are wrong. No, I, I think he means that to be a little bit more personal, right to us, right to our heart. At what he's saying to the disciples as well as us because we do it today just like the disciples did it back then. You're trying all these things on your own to live your way into the covenant with God, to do all the right things and check all the right boxes when, in fact, there's only one box that needs to be checked there. It's that the cross of Jesus is the only way into the covenant of God. That's what Jesus means when he says these words. That he says that he is the way and the truth and the life. That our place in God's covenant family rests only on the cross. That alone. What Jesus did when he took our sin to the cross is what makes us a part of God's covenant family. That the guilt, the guilt that our sin places upon us, that guilt has been taken and was put on the cross. And when Jesus took the guilt of our sin and took that to the cross, he exchanged it. In place of that guilt, what he gave us was his perfect righteousness. The perfect life that he lived that he is righteous before the Heavenly Father. And he took that righteousness and said, this is yours now. Now this is you. This is how the Heavenly Father sees you now. Perfectly righteous, not because of us, but because of Christ. That is the merit that gets us into God's covenant family. And only that. That's it. Jesus is telling his disciples in this moment, right, you, you don't know the way to go, so you say. The way is standing right in front of you, Jesus says. That he is the way. 
He is the one who opens that door. And by seeing Jesus, they are able to see the Father revealed. Right? That's what Jesus goes on to talk about. That you need to know who the Father is. The best way to see who the Father is is to see the way that Jesus, in his own life, in his own actions, reveals who the Father is. Not that they are one and the same, but they are united in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in such a way that when you see one of them, you get a glimpse at all. You see something of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work there in all of them. So when you see Jesus, you see something of the Father. That Jesus reveals that. When you see Jesus working with acts of love, you see something of the Father revealed in that. When you see Jesus reaching out to those who are marginalized and pressed on the edges of society, when Jesus goes out to them and invites them, you see something of the Father revealed in that. When Jesus gives everything he can, even his own life to the cross, as a sacrifice for those he loves, you see something of the Father revealed in that too. That Jesus becomes the best way that we see and know who God is by what God has done. And the best way we see that, Jesus is preparing his disciples. The best way you're going to see that is coming yet. It's going to be this cross and then an empty tomb. You're going to see God most clearly in that. Because that's going to be the way, the truth, the life. And it's a reminder for us who look back at that today, too. That's how we see God best, by looking back to the cross. But it's not just looking back. It's not just looking back at what God has already done, but Jesus also gives a little bit of a nod towards what's still becoming, where it's going next, how we work out from this. Verse 12, he says this, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. That this example that Jesus gives us, an example of loving others, an example of forgiving others, an example of being merciful and compassionate with others, that those are things that give an example for us to follow as well. So it's not only what God has already done, but it's also what God continues to do in us. Now, there, there's a key word, a key word in this passage, and, and it shows up, it was twice in verse 1, and you see it twice again in verse 11, a, a command that Jesus says. He says, here's what I want you to do, I want you to believe. Believe it that it starts with a belief. A belief that God is who he says he is. That what God has done for you is enough for you to be a part of his covenant. That you believe it. Not just know it, that it's knowledge. 
not just give some kind of a cognitive assent to it, but you hold on to that in your heart. I believe this. I believe this in a way where I wholeheartedly embrace the grace of God given at the cross. And I embrace it as something that then becomes the very center of my life right now. In who I am. It's my identity. So that when that question comes back around, that question, so what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean for you to be a Christian? You know what, I suppose somewhere down the way there's, I mean, here's the things that I do because I'm a Christian, but the heart of that answer, the top thing in that answer is, I'm a Christian because God's grace has been given to me. And that's the center of my life now. That's who I am. Because of what Jesus did on the cross for me, that's what it means for me to be a Christian. And my whole life, is centered on that. And because my life is centered on that, now there are these works that Jesus did, which becomes something that, through the Holy Spirit, starts to take shape in me too. That those things are now an outpouring, a response, an overflow of the grace that God has given to me. But it starts by holding in our hearts that belief that I am who I am as part of God's family only because of what Jesus did on the cross. It all goes there. And then, then, we are people who walk in the way of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of your word and the reminder that even as you told the disciples that they already knew the way, even when they were confused about that. Lord, may that be the reminder to us too when we live in a world where it feels like we have lost our way. and We don't know which way to turn to find you. Lord, in those moments, may we see the cross again. Point us back there. Always bring us back there. Because the reason that we have hope, the reason we come to this place, and the reason then that we go out from this place and live our lives wherever that takes us during the week, may that always be centered upon the cross. Going from there. Jesus, you are our living hope. May we wholeheartedly embrace that in the way that we live. We pray this in the name of Jesus.